The Morning Drive on FM 96.3 and AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive. Everybody, Kurt and Anthony here. And joining us in studio now, it's Vermont's Commissioner of Corrections. Good morning, Commissioner Demmel. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having us. Nick Demmel, <coughs> and uh, thanks for being on the show. First time on The Morning Drive. So before we get into a lot of the issues we want to talk about, uh, let's hear a little bit about your history. Um, where did you know what your you know what was your history as you got appointed by Governor Scott? What had you done before this, and uh, how long have you been on the job now? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're coming up on the two year anniversary. Uh, so November first will be my second uh, end of the second year. Uh, so Governor Scott appointed me uh, November of twenty one. Uh, looking, I think, for a bit of a change. I mean, uh, we'd gone through a bumpy period and uh, brought in Jim Baker, a good friend of mine, as the interim commissioner. Uh, I think Jim was intending to do the job for a couple of months and ended up staying for two years or so, all the way through COVID. Uh, really did a great job leading the department through COVID. Uh, but I think ready for a uh, second retirement for Jim and, and the governor went out looking for somebody new. Uh, prior to working here, I was a CIA officer in the clandestine service for a number of years for the body of my career. Uh, and before that, I worked in the United States Senate uh, for a senator on the Senate Judiciary Committee and then on his national security staff. Uh, you mind telling us what senator? Uh, Dick Durbin from Illinois. All right. uh, was the assistant leader at the time, is again the assistant leader. So um, uh, people probably wouldn't know a lot about you uh, publicly because you were at CIA clandestine operations. <laughs> yeah, that period's a little dark. And they're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? No. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, it was, I just but had it had to, to be it has yeah. to be fascinating work. Yeah, of course. It was. It was fascinating work. I mean, there's very few organizations that have a mission like CIA. So yeah. it was a great place to work. It was a great way to serve my country. Uh, spent a lot of time in a lot of different places. That was fun. The travel's good. Yeah. Um, Afghanistan, beautiful this time of year. Oh, my. And, uh, you know, people may, <laughs> may make jokes about it, but the reality is, hey, the CIA, CIA is yeah. extremely important to the uh, security of this nation. Oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. Big time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for your service. Yeah, thanks. So in, in taking over the Department of Corrections over almost two years now, what have you found? What have been the biggest challenges you faced? Do... do um, and what do you, what when you came in? What did you find that you thought needed changing? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the biggest challenge we've had is around our staffing, uh, and I think most folks know that staffing corrections agencies right now is uh, is challenging uh, everywhere in the country, not just Vermont. Uh, so, uh, inheriting an organization that had relied on a workforce that is really going away. I mean, just population differences, um, but also it's a very competitive market for employees right now. And so convincing people to come into what is also kind of a dark, opaque organization mm -hmm. sometimes uh, and convincing them to come work in a prison is challenging. And so that was, our, that was our first and foremost challenge. If we couldn't resolve our staffing issues, we weren't going to be able to do anything. Uh, did the staffing issue was it there before the pandemic, and it's begun it's become exacerbated since the pandemic, or has it been steadily in a bad spot? Yeah, so the data that we have really shows that the inflection point, the point where it all changed, was about 2015. So about four, what is that, four or five years before the pandemic. Certainly the pandemic then sent us into a bit of a tailspin. Like anything, I think the pandemic supercharged all of the right. problems. Sure. Um, and we saw that very clearly. Mm -hmm. So what steps, what do you do, or what are you trying to do to, to correct that 
that problem that's obviously a serious problem yeah i mean the first thing many people point to is paying benefits that's critically important everybody needs a paycheck people want to feel valued for their work they want to see that in their paycheck and and the state provides good benefits so we did some work there uh, and increase some pay really targeted towards the folks working in our facilities so the folks wearing the uniform uh, beyond that though we recognized that we weren't taking care of our people in the right way. And so we needed to invest in the human beings that were working for us. So that means wellness uh, activities. It means uh, career development, showing people that just because you enter the department today as a corrections officer one, that doesn't have to be your whole career. There's a lot of opportunity here uh, and mapping that out so they could they could see that. Um, we're also trying to find other wraparound services, knowing it's a hard job sometimes and, and physically hard, uh, emotionally hard. Um, and so really meeting our staff at that point and showing them the department cares. Uh, and then I think ultimately where we need to get is redesigning the role of a correctional officer in the United States, because that workforce that I was talking about isn't there anymore. And so we're going to have to find a new workforce, find a way to do the work with less folks um, and, and be you know more efficient, I guess, is a good way to think of it. Do you find, too, a shift where, um, I mean, right now, um, particularly in Vermont, because we have such limited mental health services that I I, th- I think not <laughs> I'm going to make a comparison here, but it had, like schools, they have a heavy lift now with mental mm-hmm. health support for kids. I would suspect that your department has a has a, a, a challenge because a large portion of the population that that are incarcerated really need mental health support too. So do you have some way of, of, of bringing those two things together? Uh, you, you, you know, you, we think of a typical prison guard, okay. Versus probably now they're guard counselor, you know, there's like a mesh. Yeah, is definitely. That, the job has got to have significantly changed in the last 10 years, too. Yeah, the, that's exactly right. The job has really evolved to be social worker, teacher, yeah. you know, security officer, etc. Um, <clears throat> and they do a great they do yeah. a great job at it. I mm-hmm. mean, I think it's really remarkable seeing the work of a corrections officer up close. Um, that's taxing, though, for the individual, for the corrections officer. And so we've tried to find supports for them. As we, at the same time, try to wrap other services around the incarcerated population who are presenting with really challenging, complex needs that, you know, a traditional correctional officer wouldn't have had the training or skills to to respond to. Now we're teaching that uh, right in our academy. And I was wondering if if there was opportunity when you talk about advancement and growth, you know, if if the uh, correctional officers have an opportunity to to get training or to, to get additional, um, you know, education in, they say they're interested in, in mental health or, or counseling or, you know, all these different avenues that need to be covered. When you talk about advancement, is that, is that something that you guys are offering? Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's the direction we need to go. So we've expanded the ca- the academy. Yep. The Department of Corrections has its own corrections academy. So we expanded that by an additional week, and really the the deliverables were getting more communication uh, training in uh, how to help people with complex needs, uh, that type of work. Um, we also want to open up opportunities for a correctional officer, to your point, who wants to go on and, and learn new skills to find those. We have a great partnership with the Community College of Vermont right mm-hmm. now. 
So any member of our staff can get free community college education through CCV. Um, that's one way they could seek out whatever skills they might be interested in. It's also going to help them with their career later on if they want to go become a probation parole officer, showing they, they sought out those skills, got that additional uh, training or education is going to help everybody. I think it's, you know, it's a rising tide model. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Nick Demmel this morning. He is the corrections commissioner of corrections for the for the state of Vermont. If you have a question for Commissioner Demmel, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. Commissioner, I want to go back to the retention recruitment issue again for just a moment. So you talked about additional, more pay, benefits, et cetera. Um, How does that happen? Do you have to go through the legislature to get that approved or how do those uh, increases in pay and benefits occur? Yeah, so the state has a contract with our employees through their labor union. Um, That contract runs every two years, uh, and so it's renegotiated and then takes effect every two years. Uh, We went above and beyond that contract and signed a a side letter agreement, so basically additional benefits on top of that. We've done three of those in the last three years, so Jim Baker did one, I've done two, um, really to target the pain points that we're seeing. And it's through that vehicle that we're able to add uh, benefits on top. Uh, are you seeing results yet, or do you think it's going to take a while? Well, I'll give you an example. So last year, about this time, we had a 30% vacancy rate just in our security position. So those are the uniform folks in our facilities, 30%. Today, that number is just over 15%. And so we're seeing a precipitous drop in the last year. Nice. Now, I personally don't think that's only because of pay. I think it's because the change in our approach, uh, we've changed our schedules to try to um, address what staff have told us are the biggest pain points. I mean, realistically, we're now only recruiting Gen Z and millennials. Uh, They want something different out of their workplace than 30 years ago, 40 years ago when we were recruiting. And one of the things we heard loud and clear is they want time away from work. I was gonna. I was gonna make a snarky comment, going a three day work week. Yeah, uh, we can but. do better than that, though. So what we did is a uh, what we call a fifty fifty schedule. So basically, you work twelve hour shifts. Those are long, yeah. but they were working longer. They were working sixteen. They were working sixteen hours. Yeah. Oh my, that's got to be. A- so we needed to trim that back just for you. Know, you can't sustainably work sixteen yeah. hours, yeah. right? Um, so. We wanted to restructure our system, and so we introduced 12-hour shifts, so that cut down some of the time they were working. And they only work seven out of 14 days in a two-week pay period. So um, the way we structure it is you work two days, you have two days off. You work two days, you have two days off. Then you work three days, you have three days off. Oh, cool. The way that – the real thing that I appreciated about that schedule, though, is every pay period you get a weekend off. Yeah. Historically, it would take you – 10, 15 years before you could earn weekends off. Yeah. Now we're saying everybody deserves that time off. Everybody deserves time with family, In friends, rotation. hobbies, whatever. Yeah. So and it's that. more of an equal rotation exactly. as opposed to a seniority. Kind and that's of really helped us keep that younger generation who are, you know, that's the future of our system. We need to draw those folks in, then we need to keep them. How many, how many prison guards are there in Vermont? Um, well, we've about a thousand total staff of those. I think the security staff numbers around 600. And how many, what do you need? What's the level you, that you need to get to? Um, well, we're off about 15%, so I'm not going to do math uh, yeah, on the radio, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can, I think you can extrapolate. So, so we're getting closer. I mean, 30% was huge. We were barely able to run 
the operations of our facility. And the, yeah. 30% and the guards are part of the Vermont state employees, right? <clears throat> That's right. Yep. So, so I assume, sounds like the union must be happy with the changes that have been made. I assume. Yeah, I think, you know, I, th- I don't want to speak Sounds- for uh, my friends uh, at VSCA, but I will say, you know, we have found ways to be very collaborative and getting benefits to our staff. And I think they are appreciative of the certainly the pay. OK, aspects. let me let me ask this, Commissioner Demo. Uh, I remember a case when I was in the legislature back probably 15, 16, 17 years ago. Uh, where a judge, Judge Cashman at the time, uh, gave a minimal sentence to a person uh, who had been convicted of raping a child. It was a very big case nationwide even. But the reason that he did it, he said, was because of the uh, inability to give treatment in prison to someone mm-hmm. that needed treatment. Where are we with that issue now, all these years later? Uh, it seems like something that you could correct by treating people with that need treatment in prison. Can that happen now? Yeah. As a general matter, yes. I think our offerings, we call them risk intervention services. Those those services are widely available through all six of Vermont's correctional facilities. Um, I think the challenge that we see related to uh, treatment is a lack of providers. I mean, it's challenging in the state of Vermont. I know it's challenging in normal, you know, community to find a mental health provider um, or some of these other uh, treatment providers, but it's especially hard then to find that in a correctional facility. And so we are having a challenge drawing folks in and trying to um, get them to provide services. But that being said, I think we've done a nice job of trying to make those services widely available throughout our system. I think they're quite effective. I mean, I think the data supports their efficacy. Yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, I've experienced with a few folks uh, and you watch it because um, everybody says, oh, well, you know, prison's terrible. Well, not always. I mean, there's an opportunity there for somebody to hit rock bottom. And if they're if they go through the process, uh, they can come out. They, there is there is such a thing as uh, rehabilitation through corrections. And that's why I ask about you know those programs and where you think we're headed and where do you see where do you see the corrections department in the next 10 years where i mean what are your longer term goals yeah i mean i think continuing to expand and and adopt new treatment and recovery uh, options within our system is critically important we're seeing 60 percent of our population so the population in vermont's prisons has an opioid use disorder so not just substance use, not an addiction issue in general, but specifically opioids. We know if we put alcohol, non-opioid substance use disorder on top of that, the number would be much bigger. That's a huge problem. It's very... Yeah, but 60% 60 specifically opioids. opioids. Yeah. Is that significantly up, I assume, from what it was some number of years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've seen every year the the opioid use issue growing and growing and growing and and we know that's true kind of in community in vermont in in the northeast and and nationally as well but knowing that that's what we're dealing with i mean that's a very complicated very complex uh addiction issue that we need to work through uh so finding ways to to help folks through that because if we can't can't help with the substance use issues it's going to be very challenging to help people be successful in other areas as well do you get um you know everybody talks about the opioid settlement uh, the the money is is corrections in line for some of that or have you have yeah you... so we are uh working there's a there's a council that's been assembled by the general assembly to 
hand out or, or determine how to allocate that money. Mm-hmm. And corrections is deeply involved in that conversation. I would think if 60% of the population of incarcerated people uh, have opioid issues, then, yeah. then I, I was hoping you were going to say, yeah. Well, I mean, Vermont has what they call a hub and spoke model for uh, opioid use treatment. And I mean, I would venture to guess that the correction system is the largest spoke in the state. I mean, we have the largest concentration of folks with that need. Yeah, good. Uh, well, I just want to make sure the money's going in the right place. Right, right. Uh, one of the things we hear sometimes is, and we know that, you know, by locking everybody up, that doesn't work. But at the same time, if somebody does need to be in prison, we want to make sure. The, I guess the question is, do we need another prison in Vermont? Uh, that's been a longtime question. Um, what happens if prisons are at capacity? And, yeah. and guess where are you in terms of capacity? That's a great in question. The prison system. Yeah, so we have about fourteen hundred individuals incarcerated in Vermont today, uh, in total. Um, we do have folks out of state still in the state of Mississippi through a private vendor. Um, we'd like to bring those folks back. I mean, I think everybody in Vermont, you know, thinks by and large thinks that those folks should be returned to Vermont, but we don't have the space for them. Uh, so right now we have plans to design and build a new women's facility to replace the Chittenden Regional Facility in South Burlington. That's a 50-plus-year-old facility that's definitely not serving the needs of the population there. Uh, but that won't expand capacity. Um, Where will that be? Uh, well, we haven't selected a site yet, so that's the part of the process we're in right now. We've got the initial design. Um, I think uh, we hope that it's going to be somewhere that continues to get the service providers to come in. That facility particularly receives a lot of support from the community, outside providers coming in and helping the population. Uh, so that's our, our chief aim in selecting a site, is finding a place that, that works well uh, to bring folks into the facility. Because you could run in, I mean, to the problem of sometimes communities don't want to build a prison in their community. Yeah, NIMBY. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think more broadly than just prisons, human services, uh, infrastructure in general. Why could – so we know there was issues at that women's facility in South Burlington, what, but the facility itself is outdated or just – yeah. It, it, uh, why could that not be torn down and rebuilt on that site? Uh, we've looked at that. The site is really small. That's part of the problem. There's a creek that runs through the back that really limits the, our use of the site. Um, on the one hand, it's a great location because it is kind of in the center of things. And so people can get to it easily, family can visit easily, and the community is pretty involved in that facility. Uh, on the other hand, the site itself isn't really ideal for the type of building we're looking for. Uh, and we've explored options to retrofit it, you know, kind of uh, renovate the entire inside. But Go vertical. Yeah, the costs, I think, are just as high or higher. And so we thought starting from a kind of a purpose design might be a better approach. And I know you don't have a site picked yet. Mm-hmm. Do you have like internally have a number of sites that you're considering? So the state did put out a request for uh, proposals for uh, individuals who had land or who were interested in the project to respond. I haven't seen the results of that yet, but I know that it's coming together kind of as we speak. Mm-hmm. And in terms of... You know, the facility was outdated, whatever needs to be replaced. Mm-hmm. But there was also, obviously, there was a big controversy of um, how prisoners were being dealt with in the prison. So along with creating a new facility, um, how do we correct uh, the problems that existed in that facility? Yeah, and I think this is where my predecessor, Jim Baker, really deserves a lot of credit. Um, stepped in kind of in the middle of that situation uh, to 
design a new way forward for us. And so new leadership was brought into the facility. I mean, I think by and large, leadership is the key to driving us out of many of our problems. And so new new leadership at the facility, a real refocus on staff and making sure they, they had the resources they needed to do the job uh, and making sure that we were living up to the values that we espoused as a department. And um, I think there's been a, a major culture shift really in the last five years or so. So you're confident as we sit here today that uh – prisoners that are in there now before the new facility is built that they that that issue has been dealt with and that they're being treated correctly yes and i think um our staff is doing the best that it can with the physical infrastructure that's really our limitation right now is the physical infrastructure of that building um to give you an example i mean it was built to be a men's detention facility short-term detention facility and now we're using it as the long-term women's facility for the state it's just not it's not designed for what we need all right, well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to check in with Fox News. The man has got the headlines. Uh, the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline will be on his phone. Hey, it's <laughs> all right. We're going to continue. <laughs> continuing now our discussion with Vermont's Commissioner of the Department of Corrections, Nick Demmel. And if you have a question for Commissioner Demmel, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. Commissioner, one of the issues, and I know you can't talk about the details of a particular case, but one of the cases that was big in the news recently was the case about uh, Matthew Morgan, mm-hmm. who had was out on furlough, right? Right. And uh, was believed, or at least was charged with committing a crime, a shoplifting at Walmart. Walmart then came back and said, they, they retracted that, basically said that, I guess there was proof that showed that he, he was not that person. Um, there was then, he was pulled back into prison um, Without talking about that case personally, can you tell us how the furlough system works? And I know this this whole issue with him, and I, I understand he is now back, he's been released, mm-hmm. and some legislators had written you a letter and were saying that it was unfair that he had been shown not to have committed this, this crime, but the issue seemed to revolve around housing. So how does it work with the furlough system with... Uh, with housing, if you, and how do you get on? How do you go on furlough? How, how, tell us about the furlough system. Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and this is largely a unique feature to Vermont. The, this idea of the the furlough structure. So, so what furlough means at the broadest level is uh, an individual is sentenced to a term of imprisonment of, of confinement, and they come to us for a minimum amount of time. So the court says your minimum sentence is one year, for example. So you must serve one year. Then beyond that, you have a maximum sentence, so 10 years, perhaps. At 10 years, you have to be released from the prison system. But those intervening nine years, there's some flexibility in what we can do with the individuals. And so if they meet a certain criteria, they can serve their prison sentence in the community, and that's called furlough. Um, It's community supervision furlough is the, the formal name, and it allows the department to say, okay, this individual seems to be doing okay in the correctional facility. They're meeting whatever the criteria is that is set. We're going to allow them under our supervision to live out in the community and try to kind of reintegrate, reenter the community. Um, and they're supervised by a probation parole officer in, in their local jurisdiction. Um, and then in broad terms, that's how the system works. Some of those individuals who get released on furlough have a a residency requirement, meaning the department needs to investigate and certify that the place they're going to go live is safe for them, safe for their potential victims, safe for the community, um, and and won't present any problems. Um, 
for example, you wouldn't want somebody convicted of a sex offense living next to a school. And so if they wanted to live in a residence near a school, we would probably block that. How is it determined who gets to go on furlough? As you're talking about somebody has a one-year minimum sentence, they have to serve the one year, then there's that time in between. How is it determined who can go on furlough and whether they do get to? And, and um, yeah, just, just go on. So there are some criteria set in law. Uh, set by the legislature. And there's uh, then policies within DOC that govern how we decide whether to let somebody out. But the decision to let somebody on furlough is exclusively the discretion of the Department of Corrections. And what's the difference between furlough and parole? Mm-hmm. So uh, furlough is still an incarcerative sentence. So you're still incarcerated. And you're a ward of the state, or, yep, you're, or whatever the term you're is. In prison, yep. you just happen to be in prison in the community, and it, which is a bit strange, right? To get your head around, parole is a release. So you are released from the prison system, and you are in the community, uh, and you have conditions set that you have to follow. Um, or you could be pulled back in. Or you could be pulled in. The difference is, um, you would violate furlough. So, so say um, you were in the community on furlough, committed a new crime. The department would say you violated your furlough conditions, and Boom. we would and they can pull you, you back bring you in back instantly to, for the yep. rest of your sentence. Correct, um, or until we decide that you could go back out on furlough. Parole would go uh, you, a violation would be filed by the Department of Corrections, but with the parole board. Yeah, and you would be then brought before the board, and they would determine what, if any, sanction would happen, whether you'd be re- so. So if you're if you're on parole, then there's a there's a there's a there's an authority. It's not the court system, but there's a board that you go before and, and with furlough corrections can just say no you you're are still our custody you're coming here tonight right yep. right gotcha all right well let's go to the phones good morning you're live on the morning drive good morning um you said safe for your for the potential victims so you're letting people out of jail to be in the public so that they can fight excuse me find potential victims that's why they should stay in jail, so there aren't any potential victims. Uh, well, the example, I guess, that comes to my mind when I think about the, the protecting a victim in the communities, we, we might let somebody out on furlough who potentially was convicted of a domestic violence charge, but we wouldn't let them go live with the victim that they were accused of, um, of abusing. And so those types of protections we build in through the residency requirement. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Uh, just a question regarding medical issues. When these people are on furlough, uh, are we as a state responsible for their, their medical services while they're on furlough versus uh, when they're on furlough or parole? Are they eligible on parole as well for medical services that we pay for? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So when an individual is in the community, the Department of Corrections does not provide medical care to that individual. Many of the individuals who go out into the community are eligible for Medicaid, and so they would gain access through that type of uh, federal-provided insurance. Um, When an individual is in our system, incarcerated behind the walls of one of the facilities, the department does provide comprehensive health services to the individuals. All right, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Well, hi, good morning. Uh, the company I used to own worked in a lot of the prisons and just a couple of stories. Up, the prison up in St. Albans, uh, one of the prisoners every night would take a, something and scrape the mortar up between the brick, the blocks, mix it with toothpaste and put it back in. He finally got enough done, so one night he kicked, 
kicked right through and got to the outside, but he couldn't go anywhere, of course. But that's what these people have to deal with. These, the guards have to deal with. These people are very clever. Down on The one down on the south end there, the one uh, down by the uh, that we we're talking about, they took a wall down one day during construction, and inside the wall we found a couple of socks, and in the socks there was all kinds of tools, little vandal-proof screw removal tools, all kinds of tools, and, and uh, razor blades and hacksaw blades. I mean, these people are so clever, you just... It's, a, it's absolutely amazing what you guards and what you people have to go through. Thank you. I think uh, a lot of people um, don't understand what a healthy respect they have to have for your staff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, these folks are, insight. are real yeah. public servants. I mean, it, the facilities are staffed 24 hours a day, every day of the year. You know, we've got to ensure the safety of everybody, the safety of our staff their health, their wellness, you know, it's, it's a very complicated and the safety of the incarcerated from one another. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. That's the other thing. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes. Good morning. There are so many instances of people recommitting, committing new crimes while they're out on furlough or parole or parole. I mean, I couldn't even begin to list them all. So I guess my question is, do you, does your agency have a say in who gets paroled and furloughed? Or are you are your decisions driven by actions from the legislature? Meaning, do you have to let these people out? Uh, so, two parts there. So, if an individual is going to go out on furlough, we do have the decision making authority on whether to put them out and also when to have a violation filed and, and draw them back. If somebody commits a new crime, that typically results in reincarceration. And there's also something called technical violations. So. Say you were supposed to be, you know, a curfew, you're supposed to be home by nine o'clock, you violate that. Uh, a pattern of that can result in reincarceration, but that's a case by case evaluation that's done by the probation parole officer. Uh, for parole, that, that decision making is governed by an independent board um, that. Like Mr. Fitzgerald, Gregory Fitzgerald just went in front of correct. the parole board, right? Yep. And was denied parole. And that, and the kind of rules that govern that process are set by the legislature, but the parole board, which is independent from the corrections department, makes those determinations. But then to go a little further with the furlough, furlough system, so you said that's the sole discretion of the Department of Corrections. Is it, I assume you're not making the decision on each and every one of them. Do you do, you do it with a panel yourself? Yeah, so we convene a panel of experts within the Department of Corrections that represent different parts of um, our discipline. And that panel makes a recommendation that's uh, supported or, or, you know, adjusted. And and what can you tell us a little bit about the criteria? Like, I, obviously, as you mentioned, there's times someone's denied furlough. So if you believe that they are not a danger to the community, for example, if they, mm-hmm. you believe that they've uh, behaved well in prison, whatever the criteria might be, and that they're not a danger to a community they might be put in, then you would issue a furlough release for them. But yeah. not if you believe they might be a danger, is that... Yes, that's right. Um, you know, what we see most often is individuals that we put out on furlough tend to be violated because they either can't live up to the terms of their release, so they're not meeting with their probation officer, uh, you know, not showing up for meetings. Um, if they have uh, residency requirements, they stop living at the residence. Those types of things are typically what folks get drawn back in for um, because they, they just can, aren't complying with whatever the conditions that we set are. Um, a lot of our work is based on risk assessments. So determining what is the person's level of risk either 
to uh, for violence or public safety reasons, or their risk to reoffend. If we put them out, are they just going to go commit the same crime and come right back? And, and we try to identify those patterns. And we wouldn't let folks out who meet those kind of different uh, concern buckets. And now someone, if someone is in prison um, and they were in prison on a crime, a sexual crime, and they're on the uh, registry, for example, I know that there are times when someone's released because they can't be held anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and those cases are sort of unique because there's some belief that they've, they're never fully rehabilitated. Um, do you have to, because I know sometimes the police law enforcement will, will alert a community that there's this individual that's mm-hmm. been released because they have to be released. Uh, but they let the community know that there's this person's there. They feel yeah. that there's a need to let them know that this person could be dangerous, which of course now puts the whole community on alert. Um, and does, do you guys have any role? Does the department of corrections have any role in that? Like, do you tell the Law enforcement, hey, look, we're releasing this individual. We have no choice. What, what's the role that the Department of Corrections has there? Yeah, there are rules that govern that type of process. And so we do notify communities if an individual that meets those criteria is going to be released. We also have a lot of um, policy around notifying victims. Uh, and, that, and that's something I think sometimes gets forgotten in the conversation is many, nearly all of the folks that we have incarcerated have victims of, of whatever the underlying acts were. And so we, we work very hard. We have an internal team of victim services specialists who work with victims, help them through just the process in general. But if an individual who's convicted of a crime and has a victim is about to be released, we'll notify the victim, talk to them about that, help them connect with services if they need that. I mean, it, it can be very traumatizing, as you can imagine, to be a victim of crime. Uh, and so making sure that those supports are in place. But the example about the sex offense is a good one to highlight that. We also require treatment before we'll release folks for many crimes and particularly sex offenses. And some of that is set in law and some of that's DOC policy. But we won't release somebody until they go through the treatment programs. If they refuse to go through the treatment programs, which does happen, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to stay incarcerated until they hit their maximum date. That date is set. It's set by the court, but really following the statute around sentencing. Uh, beyond that date, we can't hold them under law. And so, so if an in, and many individuals serve twenty years on a sex offense, refuse to go through treatment, we'll hold them the whole twenty years, and then they get released after they a, hit that maximum. Yeah, a few were just released in the last year or so because that made the news because your department put press releases out. Let's talk a little bit about. So you say you know we're still renting space in Mississippi for mm-hmm. for some from Vermonters that are serving time, and it just came out in Digger last week um, that an average of uh, 60 people a month right now um, your department is holding for the federal government um, so how does how does that work um, and and is that that seems like an uptick uh, in demand uh, talk a little bit about that yeah that's a great question so we do have a contract with the federal government through the United States Marshal Service to hold federal detainees so federal detainees are those individuals who are arrested in Vermont by the federal government and they're being charged in federal court so typically we're housing state detainees, folks right, who so are committing state crimes. They're Vermonters, gotcha. By and large, a vast majority of the folks that are arrested in Vermont on federal charges are Vermonters. And so we have a contract in place so that we can house those folks while they're pending trial in Vermont. So they'll be taken to either the federal courthouse in Burlington or in Rutland and uh, go through their proceedings there. 
we think that that's a good thing in so much as those individuals are going to have to keep coming to Vermont to go to court, and most of them are Vermonters. If we didn't provide that service, those folks would be sent away to other states and have to be brought back for court proceedings. Um, and, and it, you know, I think we owe it to Vermont to house the Vermonters who need to be uh, going through trial and, and court proceedings here. And because so there isn't there isn't a federal prison in Vermont and there's no discussion of building a federal prison in Vermont. Right. And, and in most states, the federal government relies on county jails. We don't have those in Vermont. That's not a feature here. The state has everybody incarcerated. So so we provide that service in lieu of the counties. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I apologize in advance if someone's already asked this question. Um, but uh, how does one get on the, the parole board or the uh, furlough board that determines these uh, inmates' um, you know, ability to, to get out of prison? And are they appointed by lawmakers that, uh, that want them to follow their agenda? That's my question. Thank you. Yeah, great question. So to get on the parole board, you're appointed by the governor. Um, and and I forget the term of appointment, but it's a few years. Um, and as far as the furlough uh, review, that's done internally by DOC career staff, so experts in specific disciplines who sit on a panel that review each of those cases. Talking to Nick Demel, he is Vermont's Commissioner of the Department of Corrections. If you have a question for the commissioner, give us a call. We've got a few minutes left. 888-414-0303. Commissioner, there have been a few instances in the last year, and before that, obviously, as well, of people, prisoners dying in prison. Uh, One was uh, Sean Gardner, who I'm reading from a WPTZ story right now. 37-year-old Newport was found with an unknown substance in the shower area prior to his becoming unresponsive and dying. Uh, back in the end of July. Can you talk a little bit about what what's the underlying reason? Is it usually they come in and they've been they've been arrested, they've they've been brought in prison and they've already been maybe highly using drugs? Uh and how easy is it for a prisoner to get drugs in prison? Yeah, those are those are good questions. So we have we didn't talk about this much, but we have a unified system, meaning we have everybody who's in uh, detention or incarceration in Vermont. Um, so that means you get arrested tonight by Burlington Police. You're coming to the Department of Corrections. Most places that's a local lockup or a county jail, but again, we don't have those. And so uh, about a third of our population are detainers. So those are folks who have been arrested. They're either awaiting arraignment or they're waiting trial. Uh, the rest are sentenced. Um, so for the detainer population, what we're seeing, especially in this last year, is many individuals are presenting uh, with very severe substance use issues um, that the substances they're using are far more dangerous than anything we've seen in the past. So a lot of fentanyl, we're seeing xylazine, in addition to you know your more traditional opioids or other drugs like cocaine. Um I think those cocktails are pretty dangerous. And so we're seeing as folks come in, uh, they're going through severe withdrawal, severe detox. Um, it is possible to smuggle drugs into a correctional facility. Um, I think we need to be open about that. Uh, we have a variety of techniques that I don't want to go into, but that we use to try to screen that out and prevent that from happening. Uh, but especially for folks who are in the first couple of days of incarceration, it can be a challenging time, uh, both for their health, uh, working through their substance use issues, and us trying to prevent any contraband from coming into the system. 
I've always wondered, uh, we've had some high-profile cases, like Pennsylvania, right? The person, uh, Cavalcanti, yeah. who escaped by doing the, what do they call it, the crab walk yeah. up the wall? Yeah. And, you had the, and they said that he had escaped before. There's been some escapes. Right. Dan Amore had that famous escape in a few years ago yep. over in New York. Are we confident about our system? I mean, we don't seem to have had that problem here. Or if we have, we haven't, I haven't heard that much about it. Are we confident about the security in our prisons of, of somebody that's really dangerous managing to escape? Yeah, I, I'm highly confident. I mean, I think we have a staff who's very well trained. They're very diligent. Um, and they're, they're the ones that make sure that these types of things aren't happening. I'll tell you, we've had two, I'll call them escape attempts, but that might give them too much credit. Two attempts in the time that I've been commissioner, uh, neither of them got off the kind of aspirational phase of the effort. <laughs> um, and staff immediately intervened and, and made sure that those things didn't go any further. Um, we also, I think, have purposefully designed the security around our facilities to prevent that type of thing from happening, and, and we're confident in that. Nobody can crab walk their way out? I don't think so. <laughs> no. uh, it did make me think uh, after I, I saw you, the video. You but, see the video, and it's like, i got to make sure we don't have any thin hallways. Yeah, did we put walls hallways. next to each other? That's right. not a great idea. And the guy was only five feet tall. I mean, because when you look at the video, he looks like he's six feet tall. I'm like, well, that's a big guy, and he can do that. He's literally five feet tall. The athleticism was impressive. Yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, Commissioner. You just raised an interesting point. What what happens if somebody comes in to the system and they are opioid addicted? I mean, obviously, you don't give them opioids. Uh, are they treated with methadone, or do they just sort of detox like crazy, or how is that handled? Good question. Yeah, so folks uh, that come into the system who have an opioid use disorder, they meet with specialists, mental health treatment and, and substance use treatment specialists. And Vermont offers what's called medically assisted treatment. So that is the preferred uh, medical treatment for opioid use disorder. And so they're provided uh, medication that um, is altered. So it, it, it treats the body a bit like an opioid, but it doesn't have the, the same uh, principles that, that get people high. And, and some of the medication have suppressants, so it makes the body not desire that as strongly. I'm not a medical expert, so bear with me in the explanations. But that program appears to be highly effective at, at treating the uh, underlying substance use for folks that are incarcerated. And then hopefully we can connect them with those services in the community as they go out um, and so folks do receive treatment. There's there's different medications for different needs, and so it's not all methadone, although that is one option for some folks. Um, and then there's some other um, options available, depending on the needs of the individual. We're just about out of time, but I think a, a quick question here is how many, uh, how is it decided who goes sent gets sent to Mississippi? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. So we do have criteria set out. Uh, you have to be sentenced. So you, typically folks are serving a long sentence because um, some of the criteria that you wouldn't be eligible for programming yet. So that's, those are those risk intervention services we talked about uh, that you pass a medical screening. So we know that you're healthy and in, in good shape. You have a long sentence. Um, some people self-select. They want to go to Mississippi. Um, and so we, we compile that list. We have about 125 folks out of state today. Uh, and we've tried to maintain that low level uh, as best we can. Is it only Mississippi? Only Mississippi, yep. One facility. All right. Nick Demmel, thank you for being on the morning drive today for from Vermont's uh, Department of Corrections. We appreciate all that uh, great information to, to, yeah. our, to us and to our listeners. Yeah, Listen. thank you guys very much. Very, very insightful. Great way to spend the day.
Okay, thanks for coming in. All right, well, we're going to take a break. We're going to check in with ABC News. Uh, Amanda's got the headlines, and we've got the forecast. Then we're going to be talking with the South Burlington School Board Chair, Kate Bailey.